Here's a trivia question for you this morning. What do Alexander the Great, Napoleon Bonaparte, Augustus Caesar, Genghis Khan, Charlemagne, and Tutankhamun all have in common? Any guesses? They're all powerless. They're dead. That wasn't always the case, though. During their lifetimes, each one of these men had a certain amount of power and authority that they wielded for accomplishing their own purposes, whether those purposes were noble or not. Plenty of other names could be added to this list. People who also have a certain amount of power and authority, whether they be celebrities, politicians, athletes, authors, screenwriters, bosses, or even just the cool kids in school. For a number of reasons, society has assigned a certain amount of power and influence to these various people. Some leverage their fame to promote causes they're passionate about. Others use it to promote their own interests. And some of these influential people have worked hard to get where they've gotten. Others are simply born into it. At some point, whatever power, prestige, and influence that these people have had leaves them. None of the men that I mentioned earlier are people who we live in fear of today, are they? Though at the time when they were alive, many people feared them. Power, influence, authority doesn't last forever, no matter who you are. That's what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. In Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar recalls a certain period of his life that isn't included in any of the highlight reels of his kingship. No one recorded this time period in his life. However, the Lord has inspired it to be written down in Scripture for our instruction, and so we'll look at it today. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon, at the time the most powerful nation in the world. There literally was no one more powerful, more important in the eyes of the world than King Nebuchadnezzar at this time. While he should have been happy and content, His dreams stirred fear within him, and he asked people to interpret them, and none of them could, except finally Daniel. Daniel could, and he conveys the meaning to the king of the dream, and the dream troubles Daniel as well, wishing that this dream would have been given to someone else other than King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is informed that at the height of his reign, he'd be driven mad and become like a beast until he recognizes who the Most High Ruler is of mankind truly is. Is it Nebuchadnezzar or is it someone else? This tidbit of information is stored away in Nebuchadnezzar's mind for a later date. Twelve months go by and having a whole year to ponder this dream and what it means for him and for his kingdom, one day he walks out to look at his kingdom. He steps out onto his roof and he sings his own praises. He says, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built, a royal residence, by the might of my power and the glory of my majesty? Look at all that I've done. If only more people could be like me, but no one is as great and wise and majestic as I am. Those are some additional words that I added for your reflections. But it was at that moment as he's singing his own praises, that the word of the Lord comes to him and puts the king instantly in his place. He is made brutally aware that his sovereignty, that his power, that his authority, that he thought was his own, was actually never his to claim. 
He lost his mind and ate grass like the cattle. That would be a sight to see, wouldn't it? Someone who is very powerful, someone who we live in fear of, all of a sudden loses their mind. And for you farmers who have cattle, is coming up to your feeding trough to eat amongst your cattle. Now, there was no man who was, prepare, who was providing for Nebuchadnezzar. He didn't have a rancher looking out for him. He was wild in the wild, entirely and completely at the mercy of God. And it's then that we come to our text in Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 through 37. And I invite you to stand out of respect for God's word as we read this passage here. Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 through 37. Reading in Jesus' name. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? At that time my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom, and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty." and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true, and his ways are just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Father God, these are your words. Your word is truth. We pray this morning, Lord, that you would humble us in your truth here today, that you would help us to recognize you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. It is you and you alone who are the most high of heaven. Father, as we dwell on these words here this morning, we pray that you would give us understanding. Open up our hearts and minds to receive you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We aren't as sovereign as we think. In whatever realm that you'd like to think, we're more dependent than we care to admit. King Nebuchadnezzar found that out the hard way. After his reason was restored to him, he recognized that he was not the most high. Even though he was the most powerful person on earth at this time, he was not the supreme commander. He was not the ruler of all of heaven and earth. He may have been the world's most powerful man, but there was a power far greater than his own to which he too, King Nebuchadnezzar, King of Babylon, must submit the King of heaven. Nebuchadnezzar's confession places man in his proper place. As much as we'd like to think that we ourselves are God, we aren't. Now, we all know that. I don't think any one of us here this morning would say, I am God. But in practice, it's often another story, isn't it? Who gets the last word? On what authority do we base our own opinions and convictions on? on how the Lord has revealed himself in Scripture? Or is it dependent upon our own most enlightened reason? If people would only listen to us, the world's problems would go away. Or at least they would be less. If people would only listen to me and do things my way, then we could all get along and there would be no problems. Everything would be just fine. The sun revolves around me. Now I say that tongue-in-cheek, and I hope it sounds like nails on the chalkboard as you think of me trying to take all of that power for myself. But we do that in our own lives, don't we? 
Don't we go along with people who agree with us? Or we speak to our own echo chambers knowing that our own ideas are going to be received well and we won't get pushback because we're so enlightened. We realize when we sit back and assess our own actions, our own mindset, our own beliefs, how incredibly self-centered and selfish we truly can be. Especially when we see it in others. We see it in others that we can call a spade a spade, and yet we do it too. Each one of us. Because we want to have the final authority in all things. Especially at the end of the day, we want to be right. Don't we? No one wants to believe a lie. No one wants to be wrong. No one wants to be made a fool. We want to be the most high. We want to be God. And this is where Nebuchadnezzar had been. Only he had a little more authority than you and me. And in the grand scheme of history, there's going to be more ink that will have been spilled writing about Nebuchadnezzar and more stones have been carved accounting his kingship than probably any one of us or all of us combined here this morning. And that's okay, because this world isn't about us. We're just a part of this creation. We aren't the creator. It's about him. And we are not God. King Nebuchadnezzar came to the realization that his kingdom would not last forever. It was not guaranteed. It was only by the providence of God that he had any ability to govern his kingdom. And one day, his dominion would come to an end. However, the Most High's dominion is everlasting. His kingdom endures from generation to generation to generation. In other words, the Lord's kingdom will not end. Scripture proclaims that in a number of different passages that the Lord is king forever and ever, and he will rule forever. There is no earthly king whose reign will ever come close to that. The best that mankind can do is establish dynasties, but even those won't last forever. It's good for us to come to the realization that our earthly lives are temporary. They're just a blip on the radar of world history, let alone all eternity. Nebuchadnezzar recognizes this. He proclaims in verse 35, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. Think of all of those awards that you have received throughout your lifetime. All the many things that God has brought you through. Things that we like to point back to that we include on a resume to make us ourselves think of ourselves as important. All of mankind, you are nothing. It's a healthy dose of reality for us. It gives us a proper perspective of ourselves and this historical moment in which we find ourselves. We want to be significant. There are currently 7.8 billion people in this world. So what makes you so unique? What makes us so unique? What makes us here in Deschler so important? Now hear me out for a moment. I'm not saying that you are not important. But what is it that makes you important? Is it your family? Is it your job? Your reputation? Your social media accounts? There are 7.8 billion other people in this world who have their own answers to those questions as well. So again, what makes us so unique? Or and asked another way, what makes us valuable? In the world's eyes, we're all just statistics. Every last one of us. 
just one in 7.8 billion. And someone may say <clears throat> that that makes us less important than an endangered fly, because that fly is an endangered species. But there are 7.8 other billion, 7.8 billion other human beings. So again, why do we matter? The question to that, the answer to that question isn't found by looking inside ourselves. It's not found by looking at our unique circumstances, but it's found by looking to the one whose kingdom endures forever from generation to generation, who rules yesterday, today, and forever. From looking at the one whose dominion is everlasting, from the one who does according to his will in the host of heaven. What has the Lord done? What has the Most High said and declared? God says he doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. God said that he desires for all mankind to come to the knowledge of himself. And he sent his son in order to make that happen so that we might know his love for us. He sent his prophets that we would know his plan of salvation. He did this so that you would know that he loves you. He did this so that you would know that the host of heaven, the King, the God Almighty, will let you know that you matter to him, to the most important person who has ever walked this earth and whoever will walk this earth. God's plans for you are for a future and a hope for all eternity to dwell with him forever in his presence. He sent Nebuchadnezzar this dream that he would know that there is a higher authority over and above himself, higher than anything that this world has to offer. Indeed, called the Most High. There's no most or higher. It's Most High. There is no one higher than him. God himself took on flesh to enter our world, to redeem our pain and suffering, and to bring us to salvation, to bring you to salvation. Jesus came to usher in a kingdom that would last forever, one in which God will do what he does and no one will be able to say, why did you do that? No one will be able to thwart his plans either. Nebuchadnezzar does well in recognizing this reality, that he is not sovereign, but there is one who is. The Lord is sovereign. Nebuchadnezzar is not a self-made man standing on his own accomplishments, but he has always been dependent on the Lord's mercy and favor. He learned what Jesus told his disciples in John 15. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You are entirely dependent upon God. Nebuchadnezzar realized that his majesty, his splendor, his glory, even his whole kingdom was itself a gift from God. And when God took it away for a moment, he had nothing. And after his restoration, he recognizes that I have been given these things. These things are a gift. He is restored back to his kingdom. The king's nobles and counselors once again began to seek him out. Nebuchadnezzar's power and authority were restored. He closes this chapter with these words in verse 37. He says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways are just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Nebuchadnezzar previously had been the one to try to humble those who walked in what he viewed as pride. From threatening to kill all of his wise men, who were unable to interpret his dreams for him, to attempting to make an example of the three men who would not bow down to the statue that he created. Nebuchadnezzar had been the one to humble the proud. And at times we like to view that role for ourselves too, don't we? 
We want to be the ones to humble the proud. Oh, if only someone would humble those prideful, arrogant people. God, use me. I don't want to do it, but if it has to be me, I'm willing to do it. Nebuchadnezzar learns that there is someone else who humbles the proud and who humbled him. He learned the hard way that as much as he desired to be able to be the one who humbles, he lacked that authority. The Lord God provided Daniel with the ability to interpret his dream. The Lord protected the lives of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah as they walked out of the furnace unscathed without even smelling like smoke. The king thought he held the authority over life and death, but he was sorely mistaken. And now he realizes afresh that he too answers to the Most High. That same God who was able to humble Nebuchadnezzar is able to humble those today who still walk in pride. And one day he promises that he will indeed do that. But today God in his patience is prolonging that day until he comes again. Or he may in his mercy humble the proud of heart before his return and before their death and cause them to recognize their true humble estate that we, each one of us, are deeply dependent upon a God, upon a God who is good, and upon a God who is the Most High. Dependent for our daily bread, dependent for our every breath, dependent for eternal life. Scripture proclaims that one day every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So that day of humiliation where we are put in our place will indeed come. It's inevitable. It's part of what we anticipate here in the Advent season, the return of King Jesus. And we prepare ourselves for his coming again, humbling ourselves before him. Though the process of our humiliation may be uncomfortable at times, it's there when we humble ourselves that we find the greatest comfort. Because God indeed opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. A bruised reed he will not crush, and a smoldering wick he will not extinguish. Throughout his earthly life, Jesus consistently proclaimed a message of judgment to the proud. And he consistently also gave good news to those who were broken over their sin. He forgave their sins. He healed their diseases. He gave them eternal life. It's when we find ourselves here in this place, in this broken state, that the good news of the gospel falls fresh upon our broken spirits and begins to actually mean something to us. Are you burdened by your sin? Are you brought to the end of yourself because no matter how hard you try, you cannot be clean enough? Hear the words of Christ. You are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Your sins have been forgiven. Go and sin no more. As far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your transgressions from you. Gospel promise after gospel promise is available for those who confess their sins and who look to Jesus for their forgiveness, not to their own works, not to their own ability to try harder and do better. For those who maintain that they need no Savior, that they can somehow earn God's grace or favor, their pride will eventually be their undoing. And one day they too will bow the knee and confess with their tongues that Jesus Christ is the Lord of heaven and earth. And they will bring God's judgment upon themselves, having rejected the only begotten Son of God for loving darkness more so than loving the light. God's ways are just and His works are true. He is the one who reigns forever. And He is ruling and reigning even now, though it often seems not to be the case. 
doesn't it? But Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning whether we recognize his authority or not. And for some, that will be a cause for fear. But for those who know Jesus, there's comfort in that truth. Jesus is on the throne. And though the inhabitants of earth are accounted as nothing in comparison to the Lord's greatness, the Lord made himself nothing so that you and I might become something. That you and I might be saved. That you and I might become like Christ. Jesus has dealt with our fear. He has dealt with our pride. He has dealt with our sins. It's good for us to recognize that the Lord and the Lord alone is the Most High. Not we ourselves, whether individually or collectively. And to praise, exalt, and honor the King of Heaven. For all His works are true. And His ways are just. And He is able to humble those who walk in pride.